Welcome to Neos Rewind, a podcast on war and mass violence. This podcast is made by Thijs Bouwknecht and myself, Anne van Maurik. I talk with Natalia Vince. She's a senior lecturer in North African and French studies at the University of Portsmouth. She specializes in modern Algerian and French history, and I talk with her about the research she did together with Stef Cagliola, both fellows of NIAS, the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Study in the Humanities and Social Sciences. Natalia, welcome. Thank you. Uh, this must have been very busy days and months for you. You've been part of the NIAS program, uh, comparing the wars of decolonization. Uh, a project that engages in comparative research in order to learn more about the causes and forms and um, the nature of violence by the Dutch military forces in Indonesia in 1945 and 1950. Uh, our colleague Bart Lutikhuis described it as a brewing pot. So what's been brewing? What's been brewing? Um, well, I mean, the purpose of comparison um, is not just the sort of create a chart of similarities and differences. Um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to shine a light on blind spots that each of us might have about our own particular specialism area of research by asking questions that seem obvious in another context, but perhaps we've never asked about our own research. So the project brings together experts on the Dutch military in Indonesia, but also people who work on French wars of decolonization in Algeria, British wars of decolonization in Kenya, mm. the American army in the Philippines, Malaya. Um, so a range of different conflicts. A lot of experts. A lot, a, a lot of experts. Yeah. Um, What's your expertise? So my expertise is on Algeria. Yeah. Um, and uh, so my PhD project was actually about um, women who participated in the Algerian War of Independence. Um, so it's actually very much about women in the nationalist movement exactly. um, who obviously came into contact with the French army, but it was a, was, was a book written sort of from the perspective of those women's stories and oral history and not actually from the perspective of the French army. So that's another thing that's been really interesting in this project because I come at it sort of from an area studies kind of background, whereas actually there's people who are military historians, who are diplomatic historians, who are more political scientists, and seeing the blind spots of our own disciplines has also been very enlightening. Yeah. Whether or not the meal is ready to be served uh, after all that brewing that Bart described, I'm not sure. I think possibly one of the things we've learned is, and it's that old cliche, the more you know, the more you realise that you don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly one of the things that, that we've really realised is the importance of lots and lots of really detailed on-the-ground studies about sort of the micro-dynamics of things that are going on before we can come to any grand theories about violence. Ah, okay. And what was your topic that you wrote about? during the Congress and the program? So I was working with uh, Stef Scagliola. Yeah, a Dutch historian. Uh, a Dutch historian, absolutely, of Italian origin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and we were working on sexual violence um, in wars of decolonization or wars of recolonization from the Indonesian perspective. Mm -hmm. And we were comparing... Okay, maybe Can you maybe explain that uh, for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So why is it decolonization or recolonization? Yeah. So one of the key things is terminology. Um, so the area that I work on, um, Algeria, there's a whole range of different names 
um, used to talk about what historians generally refer to now as the Algerian War of Independence. For the French between 54 and 62, um, this wasn't a war at all. So Algeria was considered an integral part of French territory. So the idea that this could be a war, even just admitting that would be recognizing that actually there were, the, there were two sort of sovereign powers fighting against each other. So until 1999, officially in France, the war in Algeria, which was a huge conflict with two million French soldiers sent there, mm. it was called operations in North Africa, events in North yeah. Africa. Same as the police actions in Indonesia. From the Dutch perspective. Yeah. So for the Algerians, this was a revolution. So the expression used in Algeria is the Algerian revolution, yeah. sometimes the war of liberation. And there's a lot of conflict over that. Even now, um, some people will say the Algerian war, which is very widely used, um, is not the appropriate term. And actually, it's really sort of a French military term um, that, that is used to, to, to valorise this conflict from a French military perspective. So there's lots of conflicts in the Algerian context. And when I came here as someone who, who really was really very little about Indonesia, I discovered that there's exactly the same sort of debates about terminology. The, the, the issue is, is slightly different, and that's one of the really interesting things that I discovered uh, when comparing the two. So in Algeria, when the war breaks out in 1954, Algeria is considered an integral part of France. Whereas in 1945 in Indonesia, for Indonesian nationalists, they've actually already been independent from Dutch rule for a couple of years because of the Japanese um, occupation. So when they declare independence in 1945, what the Dutch are doing when they try and stop this happening is, is not actually fighting a war of decolonization, but they're fighting a war to defend an independence which they have already acquired. Um, so you compared the two countries, the Algerian case and the Indonesian case. How do you do research to a topic like that, which is often yeah, silenced, I reckon? I, I don't think you find a lot of women or men who want to talk about it. What are your sources and how do you do it? So, yeah, that's a really good question. So one of the challenges um, that we faced uh, from the outset is that already, you know, from... Uh, the broader work on rape in sort of civilian settings, in societies which are not colonial societies, in which everyone is a citizen, we know that rape is underreported, underinvestigated, and underprosecuted. Then, when we look at what happens in wartime, which is often when there's an increase in sexual violence, an increase in rape, and even less likely that these things are going to be reported, investigated, or prosecuted. And then, when we put that in a colonial context, where the vast majority of the population are not citizens, they don't necessarily share the same language with the occupying power, that they're not necessarily going to recognise as legitimate any courts to whom they might go and make a complaint about violence committed against them. You have a whole other um, set of reasons and context which is going to, as you say, silence these stories. And then on top of that, there is the question of shame. So shame from women and those men as well who have been raped, but also shame on the part of the perpetrators. Um, what's quite striking about rape, because our project has been looking at all different kinds of violence. So they've been look we've been looking at torture, we've been looking at collective punishment, we've been looking at 
bombing, all of those things can be justified from a military perspective. I'm yeah. not saying they can be justified from a moral or ethical perspective, but in military strategy, all of those things can be justified. But rape is, is in theory, always punished. Yeah. But in practice, it rarely is. And there is this sort of culture that actually, oh, it's just things that these men do. They're sort of frustrated. We, you know, we're going to try and keep a lid on it. But to a certain extent, it's you know them sort of expressing their their biological urge. And also, what we need to remember is, you know, we're looking at the 1940s and the 1950s. Our understanding of rape and sexual violence has completely changed since then. Um, so since the 1990s, since um, when rape was used as, as, a, as a tool of ethnic cleansing in ex-Yugoslavia and in Rwanda, we have a, a much better understanding of sort of rape as a weapon of war. And when Would we... you reckon it was used as a weapon of war in Algeria and in Indonesia as well? So given the sources that we have that are not a very large amount of sources, I would hesitate to come to any grand conclusions. I think in the Algerian case, we have got enough sources to say that, yes, it was. Yeah. So it's then the before. weapon is to terrorise people and, I don't know, how can it be used? So, so this is sort of one of, one of the, the challenges um, that we face. So the, there's a lot of theories about rape in wartime. Yeah. Um, so there's this one that I've just mentioned that, oh, it's about, you know, biological urge, sexual release, which I think we shouldn't give too much credit to. And the reason we shouldn't give too much credit to that is because if that was the case, firstly, if you just provided, you know, military brothels, then people won't go out, men won't go out and rape, and actually they still do. But secondly, actually, that suggests that all men potentially in a wartime conflict are, are rapists, and actually the evidence we've got is, is not that that's the case. There are people who intervene who don't rape, and actually there is a level of individual responsibility. They're not just people who are forced to act in a certain way because of the structural context in which they find themselves. So whether or not um, it's a form of what Cynthia Enloe calls national security rapes. Yeah, so this is an idea that you punish combatant women or you punish civilian women who've supported um, guerrilla groups um, by raping them. Whether or not this is sort of systematic mass rape, what is very hard to do is to tie those sort of big explanations where rape is seen as a way of punishing both women and men, and in particular, there's all kinds of ideas that actually rape is, yes, about punishing women, but primarily about punishing men by humiliating their women. Huh? Ah, um, that's interesting as well, because mm. how is the position of the women then? Are they seen as, I don't know, part of the country or so? Uh, like, yeah, so, so... So not as individuals, but as... So this is the challenge. So we have a lot of work on this idea of of rape in wartime and rape in the colonial context as a way of humiliating the enemy man, humiliating the colonised man. Yeah. But then to go back to your question on sources, which I haven't properly answered yet, the cases that we have, the very concrete cases from both the archives of military justice, but also from women's testimony, suggest a much messier situation. So we can't explain everything through this sort of all-encompassing framework that it's about humiliating um, enemy men because the importance of place is, is really something that comes to the foreground. So actually, 
certain locations make it much more likely that rape is going to take place. Mm. Um, Where can I think of them? So what kind of atmospheres or places? Yeah, so both in the Algerian case and in the Indonesian case, there's three main locations of where rape takes place. So one of those locations is the result of uh, the nature of asymmetrical warfare. So we're looking at a guerrilla movement fighting a regular army. And the way in which guerrilla warfare works is that the, the guerrillas have to melt into and are totally reliant on the support of the civilian population. They're sort of moving through often quite remote rural areas. And so to get rid of the guerrillas, um, what regular armies do is they also move through those remote rural areas, often very far away from a centralised command, often lots of acting on their own initiative, um, and there you can see sort of a, a loss of control, a loss of discipline. Um, so one of the really common cases that comes up in both is um, the military sweep. So this is where um, Dutch or French army units are going through villages basically to, to supposedly sort of, you know, rid those areas of guerrilla fighters, but also of their supporters and to discourage people from violence often from supporting guerrilla movements, nationalist movements. Um, so one of the very common sort of scenarios that emerges is that they will enter into a home um, and already sort of going into someone's home is sort of, yeah. sort of violation already of sort of social exactly. space. Exactly, it's really intriguing. Yeah, then they will get women to strip. Then in the Algerian case, they developed all kinds of theories in the French army about what you needed to check on an Algerian woman's body. So you needed to look to see if her pubic hair was shaved, because supposedly that was a sign that she'd had sexual relations with her husband, who was in, you know, the, the gorilla. The, a guerrilla unit, and then if she said that she didn't know where he was, she must be lying. So they oh, wow. develop all these sort of theories, yeah. um, searching their vaginas, supposedly in case they're hiding things in them, uh, very sort of sexualized insults. And then you, you can see how there's sort of a process of escalation where you've entered someone's home, you've taken all their clothes off, you're searching their genitals, or you're insulting them with very sexualized language, and then often it's after that the rape takes place. Yeah. So that's sort of in, in rural areas, so often something that comes at the end of a, a military sweep, a search, um, and those tend to be gang rapes for, for the practical, in inverted commas, reason that you a group of people, someone has to stand guard while they're doing this. Yeah. Um, do you think it's also that, that the soldiers uh, got commands to do it, or was it just indiscipline and more of that? So that's a really good question. I, we can't, uh, there is no evidence that, that there is any command mm. um, to rape women. And I think we can say that definitively. So we're not looking at a situation where rape is explicitly used as a tool of ethnic Exactly, yeah. yeah. So we're not looking at that. Um, I think indiscipline is a really, really good question. I'm really glad you raised that um, because from the statistics that we have from the archives of military justice and actually the, the Dutch statistics are, are more complete to a certain extent mm. uh, than, than the French ones. So 88 cases of rape and sexual violence make it to court 
in the Indonesian case, so cases against members of the Dutch army. So in the Algerian case, we don't have access still to a lot of the archives of military justice. Um, and also it's divided by regions. So there is a PhD student in, Alger uh, in uh, France called uh, Marius Louis, who has looked at one of the military tribunals, so the military tribunal in Constantine, which is one of three military tribunals in Algeria. And he found 13 rape cases out of 636 cases of indiscipline. So that's really interesting because actually it tells us a little bit about how rape is seen. It's seen as indiscipline. Yeah. And when you read the reports, you can kind of tell that sometimes what these soldiers are being prosecuted for is not rape, but for not following orders. Um, so another kind of rape that we get is when they sneak out. It's not within the framework of operations. They get drunk, it's late at night, soldiers sneak out and they basically, they're in a remote rural area and they start knocking on doors and they go in and they rape women and often there's a lot of alcohol involved in this and those are the cases that tend to get prosecuted but what are they really getting prosecuted for is indiscipline um, and I, I think that that's really quite striking um, that actually the rape part which is the part that we find most shocking today is not necessarily what what senior officers find most shocking at the yeah. time. I see the same in my research if authorities have written about it, for example politicians, but also uh, administrators or uh, military authorities, then they say things like they're just naughty boys or, you mm. know, they make it real small mm. and just like that's what boys do. And mm -hmm. it also says something, I reckon, about how they see the women, but also mm. colonial women or the, the women from Indonesia in this case. Um, like it's not even worth it so yeah. to, to make a case out mm. of it. Absolutely, and I think that's a really important point because between saying that, you know, there are orders to go out and rape women, which does not happen, yeah. and between saying, oh, it's just a problem of indiscipline, I think the position in between that is, yes, it is a problem of indiscipline, but if you choose not to discipline it properly, then there is an institutional responsibility. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, and do you see... Uh, differences in the debate about this uh, between uh, Indonesia, the Indonesian case and the Algerian case, because I, I can imagine that because it's, uh, I think the Algerian case is like a decade or so after the Indonesian war. So has something changed in the time, like maybe there's more feminists a more feminist culture? Yeah, unfortunately, feminism in the 1950s <laughs> also is potentially that, so. a bit optimistic. <laughs> um, so that actually was one of the things that was really fruitful that came out of this comparison in that Indonesian women are raped and Algerian women are raped, often in very similar circumstances. So when we look at the examples that we've got, both from the archives and also from women's testimony and also from some soldiers' testimony as well, it always takes place in very sort of similar ways. So it's the military sweep or it's rape in custody or it's rape outside of operations. Um, but it is framed and understood by nationalist movements in, in both Indonesia and Algeria in, in very different ways. So rape becomes a political issue for Algerian nationalists in the National Liberation Front in the way that it doesn't for Indonesian nationalists. So um, we've been thinking about how to explain that. So one of the explanations that we've come up with is, is that actually 
what the Indonesian nationalist movement is seeking to do on the world stage is highlight the illegitimacy of the Dutch return uh, to, to, to their country. So a lot of their sort of international propaganda is sort of very, very legalistic um, and about sort of languages, illegal occupation. But also um, the conflict in Indonesia is, of course, just after the Second World War, when actually the sort of iconic sort of forms, if you like, of mass rape um, are... are you know, the rape of women in Berlin. There's lots lots of examples that people are already aware of. Um, but also... You would say there's more of a war culture. People get used to that kind of violence and maybe that um, has consequences for how people look at it? I, th I think it's more that it casts a shadow. So people are not necessarily seeing what is going on in the present um, because such dramatic and forms of sexual violence against women are still so very present. So if you think about the comfort women, yeah. in inverted commas, um, so our understanding of rape in Indonesia has really been very much shaped through that and through our understanding of that and also through later through scholarly work on that. So to a certain extent, things that happened after that are kind of in the shadow. But... It is also about whether or not nationalist movements seek to politicise this issue. Oh, yeah. So it is not politicised. It doesn't become part of the international campaigning. There's the no Indian... propaganda from the Indonesians no. or the Algerians. So to... there is a lot of propaganda from the Algerians about it. And oh, that's the difference. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. So there is a very famous case in 1960. And this is the case of Jamila Bupasha. And Jamila Bupasha is uh, an activist. Uh, she's a liaison agent in the National Liberation Front's urban network in Algiers, um, as are many women. And of course, one of the reasons why we have a number of rapes of women in custody is because women are active participants in this war as well. And I think that's important to underline. They're not just victims. They're yeah. also participating in this conflict. So she is arrested um, and she's tortured and she's raped with a bottle, um, which was quite a common uh, form of torture um, used by the French army um, in Algeria. Um, and then uh, she is brought before a military tribunal and uh, she declares that she actually, uh, she, she actually says, I demand to see a doctor um, because I've been tortured. Um, and then the first doctor examines her and he basically says, oh no, she's got period problems and he sort of glosses over this. And then she gets a lawyer because the Algerian National Liberation Front is has got a collective of lawyers that it uses and her lawyer is a French, uh, is, is a Tunisian uh, Jewish woman called Gisele, Gisele Halimi um, and Gisele Halimi we're going to come back to her um, because she becomes a really key figure um, in sort of French feminist politics later on but she becomes Jamil Boupasha's lawyer Jamil Boupasha tells her what's happened to her and Gisele Halimi with a group of other French intellectuals including the feminist Simone de Beauvoir turn this into a big international campaign and this is used to undermine sort of French claims of their sort of civilizing mission in Algeria that they have the right to rule. It's used um, by anti-colonial campaigns, it's used by the National Liberation Front to undermine sort of French, uh, uh, the French presence, to underline their barbarity, to basically say 
they need to go look at what they're doing to our women. So it really does become a political issue. And you're absolutely right that the time difference is important there because Giselle Halimi will actually go on to be really important in a whole number of cases that are about improving women's access to contraception, but also changing the definition of rape. Um, so she um, is a key figure um, in defending a, a teenage girl who is prosecuted for seeking out an abortion after rape after the end of the Algerian war. And then in the late 1970s, um, she um, is the lawyer in a really high profile rape case that actually leads to the definition of rape being changed in France to become much more all-encompassing. So in that sense, what's happening in Algeria is, yes, in the shadow of the Second World War, but also a precursor to all kinds of debates that are going to emerge in the 60s and 70s um, about feminism, um, about women's bodily autonomy, and so on and so forth. And that's why it has a different resonance, even with just that 10-year difference. So did military authorities knew and did politics knew or did administrators knew about this sexual violence happening? Yes, they did know and we know that they knew because yeah. they issued orders to stop doing it. Oh really? Yeah. Do you think the military authorities really tried to stop it or would you reckon it was just paper trail to cover their own backs? Um, I mean... From an operational point of view, purely cynical point of view, it's never good if your soldiers rape women unless you're actually using it as an instrument of yeah. ethnic cleansing. Yeah. Because in both cases, uh, both the Dutch and the French are trying to win hearts and minds. And so it, it kind of, it goes against your strategy of trying to win people over if you're you know, raping a lot of women and actually indeed children as well. Um, I think that... I mean, when, you, when I say orders were issued not to rape, they're often very euphemistic. Yeah, so the things like you need to respect the honour and the integrity oh, yeah. of the local population. But at the same time, rape was talked about in very euphemistic terms at the time. So if we look at the Fourth Geneva Convention uh, in 1949, I think, that, yeah. that, that actually one of the things that is banned in war is, is attacking the honour of women. It's a euphemism for rape. So it's all quite euphemistic. Um, I, I do think that at a senior level that they didn't want this happening. Um, I don't think they necessarily did enough to stop it happening. Yeah? So you can issue the order, but at the same time not necessarily sort of follow it up. Yeah, uh, exactly in a particularly systematic way. But that doesn't mean on the ground, certainly, you know, in the Algerian case, we do find a few examples of particular officers um, who actually do make the effort to really impose quite strong discipline on their group um, and ensure that, yeah. you know, perpetrators of rape are punished. Yeah. So I wouldn't like to paint sort of a, a uniform picture, but I would say that overall there is a lack of institutional interest in ensuring that the issue is dealt with yeah. properly. Um, yeah, actually a really important question that we cannot forget in an interview like this, is, I think, is what was the impact on the women uh, who've been raped and the victims? I'm really glad you asked that question because so much of the literature and so many accounts is sort of obsessed with why men do it and not enough voice is, is given to, you know, the, the women who are raped. They're sort of, you know, they're sort of almost like 
this sort of cardboard cutout of a victim. They, they don't really have a form as a historical actor. And it's very hard to know because there are very, very few studies done on this. So there's a few sources um, that we've been able to look at in the Algerian case that, that talk about basically families forgetting. And forgetting and silence can be something that can be very negative in that you don't feel that you can talk about it, you have to not talk about it in order to remain a part of your social group. But actually forgetting can also be healing in, in some cases that we're not going to talk about it, but actually we're going to move on. We're going to maybe not mention that this child doesn't look like the other oh, yeah. children. Because yeah. um, of course there are going to be children um, born of, of these rapes. Um, we have very little material on those children. Um, and we also know that from other case studies that these women are gonna get sexually transmitted diseases, they're gonna potentially have injuries, and that is in addition, obviously, sort of to the, to the psychological damage. I think one thing that I found in my own research that was really quite striking is, I think I had sort of a very Eurocentric idea about how w women react to rape. Um, which is not necessarily um, the same in Algeria. So I did some interviews with rural women, and actually I, was, I wasn't particularly asking them about rape because I'm an oral historian, but actually I'm not a psychologist, so my sort of principle, if you like, was, you know, if they bring the subject up themselves, we're going to talk about it, but actually it's quite irresponsible just to go there, bring up this big traumatic topic, and then just disappear with yeah. your research. Um, so I was doing a, a group interview with a group of women. Um, they don't directly talk about rape, it's always something that, that happens to other people. There's quite a lot of poetry around rape, so that is a way of talking about it. But and that has been written by the women themselves? Yeah, well, um, or their families it's oral or? poetry, yeah, so okay. it's sort of oral com composition, it's oh. sort of transmitted from generation to generation. Um, so yeah, there is sort of a displacement thing uh, where it, they'll be talking about it happening to other people. But also, if there's a, some forms of sexual violence, what I found quite striking is some of the women I spoke to, they actually managed to turn it into sort of a funny story. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so I was talking to a group of women who were, who were talking about, you know, the search of vaginas and they, they were actually laughing. Um, and that is not because they found it funny at the time. It must have been, you know, absolutely terrifying um, and really, really humiliating, obviously, as well. Would you reckon it's a way to cope it's with it? It's a coping mechanism. Yeah. It's a way of making it safe. It's a way of taking control of that story. They, you know, they turned it into sort of a funny anecdote that you tell to other yeah. women. You don't tell that story in front of men. But there is a culture then, if I understand you right, that women talk about it with each other. Yes have been through yeah. it. Not all women talk about it with all other women and I think it would very much sort of depend but but certainly some women do talk about it with with other women yeah. um, and it's quite interesting as well that women talk a little bit about as well their strategies to try to avoid being raped which are, are very limited they have very little you know possibility to, to not be raped in front of a soldier with a gun. Um, but they do talk about sort of smearing animal excrement on themselves um, to well, make themselves stink, basically. Or women who, who have children, they will give their baby to, to younger, unmarried, well, girls, we're talking about, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds, to try and stop 
soldiers from sort of singling those women out as oh, well. Wow. Oh, so they made their own defense system actually within they the tried. very constrained exactly. boundaries of, yeah. of what is possible. Um, and all of those stories are, are really important to bring out, but they also all demand a lot of field work in Algeria, yeah. um, talking with women, um, getting, you know, building up trust between you and them. So they start sort of telling these stories. And then at the same time, you know, if you look at sort of the oral tradition, there is really, you know, people talking about, you know, people, women talking about rape and talking about it to each other. So it's quite a contradictory picture. So at the same time, there's this silence, um, which can be strategic, which can be a silencing, which is much more negative. But then there is this way in which it's talked about, but always talked about in quite an abstract way, it mm. has to be said. It's very difficult for women to say, this happened to me. Yeah. But we can say, this happened to us. Um, Natalia, thank you very much. I've got one last question. Is there any literature or uh, film or documentary material that you would recommend for our listeners, maybe from a more academic, uh, our academic listeners, but also for a broader audience who is interested. Do you have anything to recommend what we should watch or see or read? Okay, so I'm going to check back with Steph for, for what would be particularly good sort of for, for the Indonesian um, context. Um, but we have got a few clips already from our talk that we did in SPAL, which is um, uh, about the court case, the 2014 court case of Mrs. Trimini, who was um, awarded compensation as a victim of rape by the Dutch state. So there's quite... Oh, it's it's a film or...? Uh... It's, uh, no, it's, it's, not, it's not a film, no. But we have got some sources. I could maybe send ah, you the okay. links. So oh, I, I, do you have links on your on your website? Uh, we, we can have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually we've got loads of links that, that we could send you. Ah, um, brilliant. That, that could be some of them in Dutch, some of them in English. Obviously yeah. Steph is in charge of the ones in Dutch. Yeah. Um, so in the Algerian case, um, I will do shameless self-publicity for my own book, uh, which, as I said, is not about rape um, and sexual violence. It's more broad, uh, more broadly about sort of women who participate in the Algerian War of Independence and what happened to them after independence. Mm. So you can buy that. Um, and what's the name? The title is Our Fighting Sisters, uh, Nation, Memory and Gender in Algeria, okay. uh, 1954 to 2012. So it's got a very long title. Okay. But it's available in paperback, so Why? it's not too expensive. Why not all your Yeah, it's uh, 15 euros. But yeah, there's, um, there's obviously quite a lot of works in French, which I could recommends um so maybe i don't know how many of your listeners actually read french but i could send you uh, a few links um the work of uh, rafael Bonch, um who's a french historian has worked a lot on sort of torture um also rape uh sexual violence um there's also a really good article coming out soon by an algerian scholar called khadija adel um, which is in a special issue um, about prisons and uh, it's about rape in sort of quite an informal women's prison in the Ores Mountains. Um, I can send you the link to that Brilliant. as well. I will put them all on the internet, yeah, on the and, website. Uh, yeah, I can, I can think of different ones as well. Um, are we looking for fic fiction films? Yes, that's welcome, of yeah. course, as well. Um, well, the classic one is, of course, The Battle of Algiers. Yeah. I'm sure many of your listeners have already seen. It doesn't particularly deal with the question of rape or, or sexual violence. Um, 
There is also some a few documentaries about rape during the Algerian War. Again, I can send you send you the links um, to those. But as you can tell, it's like a huge topic that still really needs investigating. So yeah. there's plenty of space for scholars who, who want to work on it to, to continue doing it. And even just listening to you, sort of the, a comparison between representations of masculinity um, in the Indonesian case and in the Algerian case. Yeah, exactly. Sounds like a really interesting topic yes. for the future study. Yeah, I think so too. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs>